We started watching a couple of new TV series. So one of them is The Time Traveler's Wife. Have you watched that? I just started, like yesterday I saw the first episode because I wasn't sure if I was, I was like, um, wasn't sure if I it's was going to get into it. It's kind of a chick flick kind of type of thing. Maybe. Like Tim is, oh, it's a little too lovey-dovey for me. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I like it. Because it's, it, it, well, it's, I really like it's time not travel. The Time Traveler's Wife. So mm-hmm. it's from her perspective, and she keeps reminding you of that between throughout the whole series. This yeah. is not his story. This is my story. And it's quite interesting, actually, because like he visits her when she's a child. Yeah, it's that, that, that whole loop, like, when did this start? Was it the yeah. chicken or the egg kind of a thing? Yeah. And then they actually meet, but when they uh, meet, she's already known him for 20 years or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's quite interesting. Have you seen the baby? No. Oh, I heard so it's, com- it's comedy horror, right? It's comedy. It is comedy horror, and it's actually okay. pretty funny and pretty creepy at the same time. So the baby is such a traveling baby, like he doesn't grow up, and he he kills people. Basically, anybody hmm. that he doesn't like, he finds a way to kill them. He just chokes them or whatever. They magically die, <laughs> and so. This lady catches him while this other lady's trying to commit suicide and jumps off a cliff and falls right next to her. This lady's standing there and catches the baby. So if, if she tries to kill the baby or if anybody tries to kill the baby, she dies too. Like ah. whoever's taking care of the baby, if they kill the baby, they die too. Because they're like, oh, we'll just kill the baby. So they start smothering it. And then the lady's like, uh, 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 I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Gotcha. Yeah, so that's weird. Any usually anything that says it's like horror, I got usually wait for my younger kids because they're real. They're super horror fanatics. It's pretty interesting story. Oh, so they go to visit their mom, and with the baby, kind of makes them go there. I don't know. It's a crazy story, but (laughs) she's a cult leader. Oh, okay. And she has this big place, and they're all like, oh. In the Jasmine Room, we don't raise our voices in anger. We only raise them in joy. <laughs> and I'm sitting there. This is really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Not the part other people would think is creepy. Exactly. Something that they'd be like, oh. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that clip that I sent you where everyone they start singing this little light of mine and everyone's hugging each other. And I'm like freaking the fuck out. And probably anybody, oh. any other normal person be watching me going, what's the problem? They're hugging each other. I was like, no, you have no idea. Yes, and you sit there feeling like worms are all over your body or you're getting eaten by spiders or something. <laughs> it really does. Every time something like that happens, especially when it's coming out of nowhere where I'm not really expecting it, and the reaction that I have in my body, it continues to tell me that I still have work to do. You know what I mean? I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I still, I obviously still have some trauma that lives in there. So, yeah. <laughs> I get tensed. I, I, I yeah, just my whole too. body gets super hard, mm-hmm. and then I'm I sit there and I'm like, oh shit! I'm tensing my legs. I'm tensing yeah. my back. I'm tensing. And I'm like, oh, I wonder why my shoulders hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I was telling you watching the deep end with the about Teal Swan. I have to consciously say, relax, whisper, like relax. Yeah. <laughs> Take a breath. Take another breath. Come on, body. Breathe. Let's do this. <laughs> it's very interesting. It's very interesting watching it because she's a little bit different. Don't quote me on this, but like I I think she's one of the few female cult leaders. 
Yeah. Of course, our Mama Maria, Karen Zerby. <laughs> When, but this woman, she started right. her following like from the beginning. And there's only been two episodes, but both times she sort of references how she uses her sexuality to whatever. And I'm like, okay. And somebody else was mentioning that there were, there was an element of attractiveness that, like, you had to be attractive for them to pull you into the inner circle type of thing. And I was like, that's weird. Yeah, it was just, it's very fascinating. Very interesting. Hmm. There was this guy that was a spiritual seeker. And he tried all these different things going from place to place. And he hadn't really found a, a solution or peace. And he comes to her thing. And at first, she goes to go talk to him and, and basically is like, yeah, you're a total problem case. And he mentioned being attracted to her. And she was like, what the fuck, dude? Which is weird because she literally uses that. But then they went back to talk to him. And he finally uh, brought up that his mother died from a su suicide. And so she was like, oh, do you want us to, do you want me to call your mother here? We can talk to her. <laughs> and then, But then she had this other woman. She's like, here's this other woman that she's going to be the vessel. And then this other woman supposedly brought the mother and he was talking to her as his mother. And it was wild. It was really wild. She's got a lot of interesting elements that like we saw, sort of like the prophecy and the whole sexuality. And it was really interesting. But then with this a different tune, there's a lot of controversy because her approach to people who are suicidal, who have suicidal ideation is to picture themselves killing themselves let's go there and so everyone's mad about that not the people who follow her but like everybody they call them mental health professionals they're all like what the fuck <laughs> but i don't know they were saying that they haven't they also don't have any deaths attributed to her followers any suicides necessarily she's claiming it works <laughs> It's weird. I'd be lying, though, too. Yeah. When someone's really struggling and you're there, you're at the doorstep, you're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to stay here anymore. There's this period of time that a lot of people go through that I've seen. They jump onto something for a reason, whatever it might be. Here's this new spirituality guru that I found and dive into it because maybe this is going to keep me here. Maybe this is the solution. And then they go in and try something else. You know, I've seen people either either struggled with attempts or took their life to do that process of maybe if I just do this or maybe just do that. So I don't know if some of that is is what's going on. There is just like needing someone to follow, needing someone to tell them what to do. Yeah. Codependency. Yeah. At its finest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's something we definitely need to talk about on a podcast is that inability to operate autonomously that so many of us have. Mm -hmm. If something is not required of me by someone, I'm unable to do it, even if I want to. <laughs> yeah. The only way most of the time that I can get myself to do things is if somebody says, you need to do this, I need this, or I want this, so mm -hmm. you know, can you please do it? 
And usually they have to ask me a couple of times too. Before I'll actually do it. (laughs) It is interesting though, because when I was training for my half marathon, I noticed that because I would often train with someone. We'd go running and I could do the five miles easy, no problem. When they're, when I was with them or the, whatever it was, the five, 10 that we're uh, training for. <laughs> but when I was by myself, I'd run a mile and be like, man, <laughs> I've run enough for today. I saw the huge difference between what, if someone was there with me or I was by myself. So I'm sure yeah. I have that. I have some of that codependency. Yeah. I think I'm sure we all do in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Because so much of our existence even was tied to what can you do for me, sort of. What can you do for the cult? What can you do for the leader that yes. you're with? That's where all our identity, all our validation, any type of comfort, support, love, acknowledgement, yeah. all came from what we did. Their rules would run around. It was like goalposts with legs on them. They would run all. They were changing all the time. Every year it'd be like, okay, then it's a new age. Then it's a new exception. Then it's a new this and it's a new that constantly. (laughs) You never knew what you were supposed to do to be right by them. Everything, everything (laughs) was attached to our behavior and our loyalty and our discipleship, everything, our value, our, our love, our, all of that. But, but nothing stayed the same as far as what you were supposed to do. You'd have a talk one day about you don't smile enough. Could you please start being more happy? And then three weeks later, you're like, excuse me, stop being foolish. Now you're, Mm -hmm. it was just constant chaos, really spiritual and emotional chaos what it was yeah Uh, so it's no surprise that we have struggles with codependency right (laughs) that's right (laughs) we'll talk about that more on another podcast yeah for sure welcome to butterflies and bravery (laughs) (laughs) hope you enjoy the show (laughs) (laughs) i like the the light shade that you got (laughs) the basket from the dollar store (laughs) cool huh yeah that's that's quite the diy (laughs) yeah i was like honey can we please just take this thing off because first of all that took up the whole shelf on top was just a fucking light fixture. You couldn't put anything on top. But there's only two light bulbs. (laughs) But yeah, it's this much. (laughs) So then I'm like, oh, wouldn't it look cute if we did this? But the light bulbs were too big. We have these tiny little light bulbs from this string of light things that's supposed to be outside, but we didn't put all of them in. And so we put the tiny light bulbs in there and it fit with the basket. And all we had to do is just cut out a tiny little hole and then just screw it on the thing. Super easy. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And then I look at this basket. I'm like, oh, hey, wouldn't this look cute? <laughs> <laughs> A strange combination of characteristics that we almost all have. 
and that is the ability to solve problems in a way that most people wouldn't even think of. We can expand our mind to go to all these possibilities, but yet we all, we have that, like what you're talking about, we struggle with codependency, which those two are actually kind of like not, they normally not be (laughs) together in the same person. They don't match, yeah. Yeah, and then we also have the thing that we don't want to ask for help because you know right. the, small, the smaller you were the quieter you were the better the lord loved you yes. and yet <laughs> codependency yeah i can it's so hard for me to ask for i'll be there struggling like all this stuff and then i'm like oh maybe i should ask for help hey can you please give me a hand sure Okay, thanks. That was easy. Why didn't I do that before? And I have such a problem with people that want help with everything, too. Oh, can you help me do this? I'm like, oh, yeah. But you could have done that. You had two hands. You just have stuff in one hand. You could have carried that stuff out yourself. That's what I'm thinking. Okay, is, so yeah, yeah, you mean the I people done who that like myself. ask for help for everything. Yes, like <laughs> I could have easily done that myself. Um, okay, sure, yeah, I'll help you, but wow. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I like I'll I I get that. I'll be like someone grew up in privilege, didn't they? <laughs> like that's a, that's a lot of times the thought that I have when I see someone with, with that. But yeah, but then I can't oh. ask for help, so. <laughs> I should maybe get out of my judgment seat. Our guest today is Tammy Willis. She works with Yanya Lalich on the Take Back Your Life recovery courses. I think she explained how she met them. I believe she took the course and that was how she met them and and then started working for them or something like that. But yeah, yeah, I just wasn't sure if you had met her before, but you had. We're uh, super excited uh, to our guest today is Tammy Willis. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Tammy? Okay, so my name is Tammy Willis, and I am almost 51 years old. And I was born and raised in extreme Christian fundamentalism. And I walked away from it when I was 18. So after all the time that I've spent in the last five years listening to podcasts and hearing people's stories and just really having those Me Too moments so much of the time, yeah. I decided to start telling my own story. And it's been really therapeutic and cathartic. And every time I learn something new about myself and my own experience, and it's yeah. just, so thank you so much for, for having me. Oh, it's super honored to have you. Thank you so much. It's so true what you say, though. Every time you share your story, it just feels like there's something more that you learn about yourself or about the experience or just like new insights. It's so important. I'm sure you understand. I'm sure you face this with the work that you do. There's a lot of people that they want to just ignore that past. They're like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to put it away and stuff. But when you start talking about your story, like you realize you would miss out on so much by trying to ignore it. You miss out on so much personal growth on even just like what you're able to do. It's really powerful. And thank you for being here with us today. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is that I don't think you realize when you live with trauma for decades, how it messes with your memory. I think a lot of people just leave that that part out of it. And even when you talk about trauma in therapy, sometimes I don't think that necessarily comes up. The thing that has been really amazing for me is that 
I'm, memories are coming back, things that I just had oh, completely wow. forgotten about. Sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not, but it's just, it makes me feel more whole that I can remember the things that happened to me. Wow, yeah. It's almost like as you start to heal and you start to build up that ability to look at those things and it takes strength. It takes a healing to start being able to look at those things. I guess maybe that's just part of your mind coming back and saying, okay, now I can deal with this. Now I can look at this. And so I think memories coming back as even if they are painful, even if they are difficult, I think it's still a sign of growth. I think it's a sign of healing when our memories start coming back. I think you're right. So my parents were not even religious when they were younger. My dad was never even really went to church and my mother was a Methodist. Okay. Um, But they got married really young and I was born a year after they got married. And my dad was in the Navy. He was um, basically the lowest rung that you can be in the Navy when I was born. So we moved around a lot. And then when I was three, we moved to South Carolina. And my dad got roped into this group that was like a military outreach program through a really ultra fundamentalist church in Charleston, South Carolina. And you know how that goes with cults. They were looking for people that were lonely and vulnerable and reeling them in. They grabbed my parents and they said, hey, we can help you. We'll watch your kid for free and come over for dinner with our family. And it was like this family that had eight kids. And I think my parents just really, it appealed to them to have that instant family. And yeah, I don't know really the rest of it because I'm not in touch with my dad at all now. And my mom died when I was a teenager. So it's it's, it's another really weird part, I think, of the recovery process. If, if you're either estranged from your parents or you don't have your parents or whatever to have your only your own memories to rely on and your own sort of child's view of what the events were so anyway yeah this family was really intense and the one of the main things that they were into is something that was later called the quiverful movement i don't know if you have heard of this But essentially, it's just a really extreme arm of Christian fundamentalism in which you have as many Many children as you possibly can in order to make God happy with you and bless you in your life. So my mom had a lot of trouble with pregnancy and childbirth. So by the time I was six, she had, I'm guessing, like nine miscarriages. Oh, my gosh. They just kept trying and trying for more kids. So my mom was really ill and not well. And my dad was gone a lot. That was another reason why I think they got more and more enmeshed with the church, just because they didn't have anyone else. And and my mom just, I think she also really suffered from pretty bad depression because of just her body getting completely worn out and used in that way. So... When I was little, I spent a lot of time by myself. My mom was sometimes in bed and couldn't get up and my dad was gone. So I I just would wander around in our neighborhood by myself a lot when I was really small. And then the other thing about this church is that their outreach extends to everything that you do all the time, every day. So there's a lot of evangelizing, going around and knocking on people's doors and that kind of thing. But in addition to that, um, you are required to open up your home to whomever. Basically, it could be like a visiting missionary or um, a visiting 
preacher or a military family that's just been deployed to your town or like a teacher, anything that you can think of. So you're having all these strangers that you don't, that are not bedded in any way. As you can imagine, a lot of abuse happens in those situations. I experienced sexual abuse for the first time when I was three. And then again, when I was 10 and my sister was five. And the only thing I could really think to do, because we couldn't tell anyone, there's so much shame around it and so much victim blaming within this community around everything that I knew we couldn't say anything to anyone. So I just tried to make sure that he wasn't alone with my sister. And we both just buried that for my sister, I think, to this day, doesn't have a memory of it. Yeah, there's just... A lot of going around, sending the kids out the door to sell things, to make money for the church and to give out religious material. I'm talking when I was maybe seven, eight years old. There's so much disregard for children in general, their, their safety and, and their well-being. And then obviously there's a ton of physical abuse happening in, in those kinds of churches as well. And the institutionalization of the sexual abuse that occurs in, within fundamentalism is something that people just don't really talk about. And yeah. I think it's coming a lot, out a lot more now, just in the last couple of years. I just saw something today that the Southern Baptist Convention is now being held accountable for um. thousands of abuse cases that were covered up over the years. But the reason that happens oh, wow. is just because there's it's institutionalized essentially what you have is this organization that doesn't ever talk about sex or bodies or health or sexuality they don't teach kids about any of that stuff they know that abuses are happening they use victim blaming as a way to keep people quiet it's a self-perpetuating cycle yeah it's interesting to me. Like, I don't know if there's ever been any studies that's looked into it, but it just seems to correlate so frequently with these fundamental Christian groups. I don't know if it's the isolation part of it that allows that to happen, or if it's just that that attitude of I'm God's chosen, therefore I can do what I want. And that sort of ends up adding to the their ability to feel that they can do whatever they want and just give in to their their base instincts. But I don't know why it seems like that. Have you had that experience in talking with other survivors? I think that because it's been institutionalized in the way that it has, and because there's so much rhetoric and language strictly for women, this is an incredibly misogynistic culture. And strictly for girls and women, you have to dress in a very prescribed way. I was like in clothes from my neck to my knees for 18 years. And there was no co-ed swimming and no co-ed physical activity at all. And so I think that purity culture is a big part of how it became institutionalized. If you're telling girls from the time they're 12 years old that it's their responsibility to make sure that men and boys don't lust after them. And in the meantime, you're also not telling them anything about their bodies or sex or even menstruation. Nobody ever told me anything about menstruation. It was like I was embarrassed and ashamed when I got my period. And I kept it a secret for as long as I could, probably three or four months before my mom saw my bloody underwear uh, that I threw away. 
because, oh my gosh. Yeah. So you're talking about just the shame that is around sex and sexuality, and then just the lack of education around it. And the fact that we're now in second and third generation of this kind of thinking, it, it doesn't yeah. just, it doesn't just encourage abuse to happen. It also breeds abusers. Yeah. That's very true. The other thing about this particular type of fundamentalism is the apocalyptic nature of it. Living every day in in terror of of the end of the world and the violent uh, war that was going to be happening, and just the kind of idea that you never really know for sure if you're saved in this environment because everything is just conditional. So no one, I don't think anyone within Christianity and that kind of Christianity really knows what their status is. And I think that's the other reason why people end up losing their minds because you can't live with that kind of uncertainty and fear and for that long without it affecting you. Yeah. The thing that you said about everything being conditional, I think that's a really important aspect to, to look at and what we went through and our conditioning (laughs) because that's another thing that we see like in survivor after survivor is that that maddening drive to perfectionism like you have to be the best like you said conditionally your value is so attached with who you were what you could do or how close you were to god or whatever it was it was always conditional your worth was always conditional and that's a really unsettling way to grow up And then on top of that, let's layer on top of the apocalyptic side of it. And not only do you not know if you're valued or loved or saved, the threat of death and martyrdom is over your head from the time that you can remember. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The really scary stuff is the stuff that that sticks with you, I think. So I remember Mm -hmm. being four and five years old and being awake in the night just because I was terrified that there were demons, invisible demons around me, or that I was going to die and go to hell. I remember thinking that before I ever even started kindergarten, you know, and, and I've been, I was so scared of the dark for most of, until I was probably 14 or 15, I was terrified of the dark. I was terrified to go alone into the woods because there's just so much fear. Everything is something to be afraid of within fundamentalism. You're afraid of men and boys. You're afraid that the world is going to end. You're afraid of strangers. You're afraid of people that aren't part of your religion because they're bad and they could lead you astray. But yet you're sent out there to knock on the doors and try to reel them in. So it's just like this dichotomy. That you're always having to go out and be terrified. And it's really, it sticks with you, I think. And at the same time, you're terrified of the God that you love and also of your religion and of your parents. So basically, you're just terrified of everything. (laughs) (laughs) Right? We had... They called it corporal punishment, but what we had was extreme physical abuse at school and then and at home as well. There's just there's no way around that within Christian fundamentalism. Kids are getting physically abused on a daily basis. And you know what that did for me? It taught me how to be a good liar. It taught Mm. me how to avoid punishment. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was one of the things that that we had mentioned with Yanya, and that was very interesting was that what cult kids lack in coping skills, they make up for in masking skills. Mm-hmm. Like I think any of us could act or basically just lie our way through almost anything that we had to because we were so conditioned to do that. Mm-hmm. And also to be to be to the Romans as a Roman and to the Greeks as a Greek. So everywhere you went, you were just adapting like a chameleon. So not only did you not know who you were, but you could pretend to be everybody else at the same time. Yeah. It's very confusing for a child. It's very confusing. It is. And I think it's confusing when you get out of it too, because you don't know who you are. That has been one of the most enduring things for me is just to actually figure out who I am and to be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not even just a self-esteem issue. It's like actual self-loathing that you, that I personally have, had to overcome. Mm. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of that. And I think it just comes from the from birth conditioning. You're basically taught to hate yourself from the time you can first think about yourself or before you even know how to think about yourself. You're basically taught to de- despise yourself. Yeah. It's very, right. it's deep. That kind of stuff runs really deep. It does. And, and when you're told just from the religious part of it, that you are, you were born a sinner and you're bad from birth and there's only one way that you can be good and be saved. And then it's an impossibility to actually do that and be that. So it's just setting people up for that kind of self-hatred. And it, it never ceases to amaze me with every survivor that we speak to that's been in any kind of fundamentalist Christian or high controlled cult group, the similarities are just insane. All the same stuff going door to door with little tiny children being taught from the time that you can first think or breathe that you're going to die pretty soon because Jesus is coming back like tomorrow. I remember being a very small child and being completely adamant about, nope, Jesus is coming back in 1980, whatever it was Mm -hmm. that we were preaching at that time. (laughs) It's oh yeah, it's brain boggling. But then it's like the people that are in it, they just I had no freaking clue. I was completely convinced that I was in the best place on earth and we were the God's chosen. And that's what they tell everyone yeah. too. You're God's chosen people and you're special and you're gonna run the kingdom. That's what they told us. You're gonna be in charge of all the other Christians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the math never really added up for me on that stuff. Because because fundamentalism, it's okay, we are the only real Christians. Even the other Christians, the Pentecostals are not going to heaven and forget about the Jews and the Catholics. But but, even even the, the regular Christians are just not good enough for fundamentalism because they don't yeah. believe the exact same things. And then they start throwing the numbers out about the things in Revelations because we were very, very literally literal interpretation of the Bible. And it was the King James mm. version of the Bible only, which is like the only yep. one. So Amazing yeah, there's all these numbers and revelations about how many people are going to get taken up in the rapture and how many people are going to get left behind. And then the population keeps growing over. The, and you're just like, how is that? How does that even work? Yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> but that was the kind of stuff that really got oh. me on the path of of questioning it mm-hmm. at a 
pretty young age. It was the abuse and just the fact that there were so many little discrepancies and lies. And, you know, I think I just got to the point where I was like, you know what? I don't really know what I do believe, but I don't believe this shit anymore. (laughs) Yeah. So what were the circumstances surrounding your leaving that? Because you said you left when you're 18. Did were, do you just turn 18 and I'm out of here? Or Okay, so my parents were in this church, and the church was pretty all-encompassing. We weren't in a commune or anything, but we spent all of our time at church in church activities. And I went to their school, which was a very small kind of segregation school in Virginia, So between regular church stuff and then being at school for seven, eight hours a day and the school being mostly Bible class and chapel at school as well, it's just like constant indoctrination all the time. And it got to the point where I was actually getting abused sexually and physically at school as well. By the time I was about 12 or 13, just because I think they started to realize that I didn't believe what they were slinging anymore. And when that Mm. happens, whenever somebody is rebellious or or a non-believer, they get the brunt of it. Two particular male administrators were the ones that were the worst. They would call me into their offices and close the door and just sit there and berate me for an hour or so and tell me how I was dirty and that I was going to get pregnant and be on drugs and die and go to hell. And I started to get to be non-functional after a year or two of that. It just got really bad. And my mom was actually a teacher at, at the school at that point. So I know that she knew that some of this was happening. I never talked to her about it, but I know that she knew. And I started to refused to go to church. I would stay home from school pretending to be sick and and just get out of going to school as much as I could, as much as I could get away with it. The church thing, they would just basically grab me and and physically make me go to church, just dragging me. And so after a couple of years of that, I started asking to go to public school because I thought if I can just get away from these people where I'm there and helpless every day, then it will be somewhat better. And I finally convinced them to let me go to public school for 10th grade. So (laughs) I started public school in 10th grade and it was like, I had landed on another planet. Like I was in complete culture shock. I didn't have, I didn't have any secular clothes first of all. And so I'm showing up in my weird fundy clothes to school and I just I didn't know anything about pop culture I didn't know you know how to act like a regular teenager I didn't know most of the stuff they were teaching like we didn't study literature or real history or science they told us that the world was 5,000 years old and that the dinosaurs didn't exist So I had to learn the stuff that everybody else already knew. So I was dealing with that for a while. But my mom got diagnosed with cancer right after I started public school. She was already she was already metastatic at that point because she was just she did not take care of herself at all. There was no kind of real medical care or dental care or any of that for any of us. But right. I think her body had just fallen apart from all of the miscarriages and 
probably just the trauma that she was holding. Yes. So she, by the time that she knew something was wrong, it was already too late in terms of the cancer having spread to her brain. So she was sick for the entire time I was in high school and she died right before I graduated. So at that point, that's the thing that allowed me to walk away because my dad was yeah. not interested in being a parent, really. I, I had two younger sisters. I, I have two younger sisters. And he just wasn't interested in parenting any of us. But when I left, it was, that's one less person I have to deal with. I, I stuck around my hometown just to make sure that my sisters were okay for a while. And then somehow got into a small college out of state. And that was the thing that kind of really allowed me to to get away. And you work with Yanya with the Take Back Your Life Recovery yeah, I do. courses, right? I do. I have spent this entire, pretty much my entire adult life just trying to make sense of everything that happened to me when I was in fundamentalism. And I spent a lot of time in my early 20s and 30s addressing the abuses in therapy, but never getting to the trauma part of that and never really addressing the root cause of just until probably like right. the last five or six years, I've kind of, I've decided to really take a dive into the complex tra- trauma that I experienced and yeah. uh, just try to deal with that from the lens of it being cult trauma and, and religious trauma. So through that process last year, I, don't even remember how I found it, but I found that Yanya Lalich uh, was partnering with two trauma-informed therapists, and they were doing these recovery courses for people who had come out of cults. So I started this course called Foundations of Recovery last April, and I learned so much about my own experiences, my own trauma, just sitting around with other people who were from various cult backgrounds and hearing their stories and their experiences is really the thing that has set me on the path to recovery, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. The, the foundations of recovery. That's the one I'm taking right now. It is really good, especially the last, the last session. I, I didn't realize that you didn't choose fight or flight or freeze or fawn. Like I thought that that was something that I was like subconsciously somehow deciding. I don't know why I thought that, but Finding out that that was just nothing to do with me or my control or anything like that. I was like, oh, my God, thank you so much. Like, for some reason, it just felt like freeing to realize that you're not totally broken (laughs) because sometimes I do the freezing and the fawning. And then I feel like I'm broken when that happens because... I can't do anything like in my freezing, I just freeze and I'm just like totally paralyzed with fear. And just to realize that was just a trauma response and not something that I was controlling. Mm-hmm. To me, that was, I don't know, really helped me to feel better about myself and not feel so like, oh, I'm totally fucked up. <laughs> like just, okay, that's what your brain does. And okay, you can stop it and fix it. And Beth was talking about turning the lights on in the attic and to turn them off in the basement. And I thought that was incredible. That is such a good coping skill. Basically doing math or haikus or something will engage your frontal lobe. And then you pretty much can just turn off 
what your amygdala is doing down there. What amygdala or however you pronounce that word. <laughs> what does that mean about the explain a little bit more about the train of light on upstairs being able to turn off in the basement? What is that in reference to? Basically your amygdala is in the bottom of your brain, is in the very back of your brain, like on your brain stem near your neck. And then that's where all of those kind of flight, flight or flight response and trauma responses happen. Your frontal lobe is up on the top of your head, and that's where your important decision-making yeah, and stuff like that happens. Yeah. Yes. So if you activate that frontal lobe, in essence, the lights will switch on up there, and then your brain automatically turns off the activity that's going on down in the brainstem that's causing you to do the fight or flight or freeze and all of that kind of stuff. I haven't had a chance to try it because it hasn't, I haven't had that freeze response since then, but I'm sure it'll happen to me because it happened on a regular basis, but I'm very excited to try it. And she, they said one really good thing to do is anything to do with math, anything to do with numbers. That's why I like a haiku because you really have to think like five and seven and five and try and, work out this whole poem in your mind. And by the time you've done that, you're basically, your amygdala is completely shut down and completely forgotten what was going on hmm. that made you have your fight or flight response. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it really is. And I, I totally agree with you, Jemima, what you just said about it, it feeling like a weight has been lifted off of you to realize that these are trauma responses. Because for me, there's, I have spent so many years of my life just blaming myself for not being able to pull it together, like not being able to handle conflict at all. I am a flight person when it comes to conflict of any kind and just blaming myself for not being able to be in control of my emotions. Like I just spent so much time just being so fucking angry, just ragey, angry and not knowing why. And it's trauma response. That's what your brain does to help you cope because you don't have any real coping mechanisms because you were never taught any coping mechanisms. Yeah. So it's really learning about how trauma affects your body is so helpful. It is very important. Very much. It is very important. And I think, too, it's like the masking that happens when you don't have coping skills. It's one of those things, almost like the deeper that you are in the denial of what happened to you, the the deeper you go into your masking. And it's it's it is it's scary to look at your yourself and what really happened to you and unmask yourself in that sense. But that's where you find yourself again, because when you're masking, obviously, like. How do you know even who you are? And the deeper you go into a masking, you know, place, I think the more you start to lose yourself. I think that's why sometimes you'll see people like all of a sudden just lose their shit because they've been masking so hard for such a long time. And then something will happen or whatever it might be, something dramatic, something traumatic that comes along in their life because every one of us is going to have that happen again. We can't ever escape trauma. It's going to just... It comes around again in some way. And they've been masking so hard and so deeply for such a long time that when a deep trauma comes along in their lives, they lose it and they don't know how to respond to that at all. So I think the unmasking and the the healing, the sooner that you can do that in your life, the better. But we end up not really being able to look at that until we're in our 30s, 40s or 
50s. Yeah, I think so. I think the thing that really got me started with wanting to get better at being able to realize what my triggers are and try to head them off at the pass was was having my son. I wanted Mm -hmm. to break the cycle. Obviously, no no religion for us. So I felt like we're already starting off on a, a better foot anyway. I knew that I had not been parented really at all. And I didn't know how to parent really. And I just thought, okay, we're going to figure this out and we're going to do the opposite of what we had when I was a kid. Even just making those decisions for yourself isn't enough. You have to, you really do have to know the origins of it and, and why you react in those ways in order to really make changes. Yeah. Finding out these triggers and and your body's responses and all of that has been probably the most helpful thing to me because then you understand why you're doing what you're doing and then you can take steps to change it. Whereas when you don't even know what's going on or why you're doing what you're doing, there's not really much you can do about it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And for me, it's been really interesting to get to a point where I'm in touch enough and not dissociating to be able to know my body responses because mm-hmm. for a lot of years it would get into that freeze mode and you're not breathing and every muscle in your body is clenched up and you don't even realize that you're doing it. It's not even yep. something yep. that you're controlling. And yes. just to get to a point now where I can know when that's happening and be able to start to breathe and unclench my jaw and shake my hands out or whatever it is that I need to do to just get out of that spiral. Yeah. It really does require you to be in a place where you can take that on, I think. And I'm really thankful that I'm able to be at this point in my life where I can do this work and actually have it be making a difference. Yeah. Yes. It took me a long time. (laughs) It took me a very long time to get to the point where I was ready to start working on myself and start learning all of these things. I spent a lot of years using drugs and stuff, self-medicating. And basically you can't really heal when you're when you're doing drugs or drinking heavily or any of that kind of stuff, it really puts a hamper. You you think, you know, oh yeah, I can do this. It doesn't really work. It doesn't really work that well. <laughs> yeah. Cause trying to heal while you're drinking and drugging. No, I went through my twenties were, I, there was a lot of drug use and a lot of drinking and a lot of, sexual experimentation and just like, I thought I was free and I thought that I was figuring things out. And that really was just aiding my dissociation more than anything else. Yeah. Because that's all you're doing. Yeah. Dissociating. Yes. Something I heard, I think it was on one of Renee Brown's podcasts was that you have to be willing to accept your own role in your suffering. Because a lot of times we like to blame everybody else for our suffering. And it's hard to admit to ourselves that some of our suffering was caused by ourselves. And admitting that to yourself, that that you've actively caused yourself to suffer more, 
is part of healing. I think I know I had to do that. I still do. Yeah. <laughs> still have to remind myself and all the time you're like, oh crap, I did that. Oh my goodness. That really wasn't very good, was it? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know what you mean. I just had one of those yesterday in the shower where I was like, oh my God, I am only just now realizing <laughs> that this situation was probably 90% my fault and something that I did. And it's not just me blaming myself because I never thought that this particular thing was my fault. And, and then it just, I had this epiphany like, oh my God, this is actually something that I need to take responsibility for. And I think whenever you have those moments that you can either accept it and look at it more deeply and figure out how to get it right in your head, or you can just brush it back under the carpet and keep going with your life. But I don't want to do that anymore. In in saying all of that, I know there's that don't have the exact wording of the, the quote, but I remember the day that I read it, don't ever condemn your soul for whatever that you had to do to survive. And so that is something that's super important. Where I sit now and I can say I can look back and say like, okay yes that, I did have that part in my I, I did play that role in my trauma or I did play that role in my whatever it was that I was going through at the time but but to not ever condemn yourself for that either because it's not when I sit here now today and say okay I'm grateful for where I am I can't look back and say I regret who I was back then, right? Or I'm like, I'm condemning myself for anything that I had to do because we were doing whatever we yes. could in that moment to keep our soul alive, keep our keep our strength together. You're super correct to acknowledge the role that you played in everything that you went through, but not from a place of condemnation, that's all. Not from a place of, yes. you know, I shouldn't yes. have done that. I wish I had none of that because you were doing everything that you could with what you had at the time, with what you knew. Yeah. So that's, that's a, that's an important aspect of it too. (laughs) I agree. agree. And when I think about how much of my time in my twenties was just really spent in survival mode, really Mm -hmm. just, I didn't want to deal with any of that. And my way of coping with it was to just have that be something that happened to me when I was growing up and now I am an adult and I'm living my life and that's, you know, not a part of my life anymore. And you you can only do that for so long. You have to do it. I think it's important for your coping sometimes to do that. And I know a lot of survivors that, that have just been like, okay, that's the past and we're moving on. But for me, I had to start really looking at it and picking it apart and getting out of survival mode was the first step to being able to do that. Yes. And you can't really do that until you're in a safe and secure and stable place where you feel like you can let your hair down, so to speak, or like, finally, now I can relax. Yeah. And it's also about trust too, right? Because if you grow up the way we did and you don't trust yourself or the people around you or that the world is a safe place or then it's really hard to feel that security that you're talking about. 
I think for me, getting to the point where I can get my head around it enough to talk about it has been huge. I guess my advice to anyone who's thinking about that and, and, oh, I can't talk about it very well because I can't find the right words or I'm too scared or you, you feel like there may be repercussions from the people that you know in your past. Even if you just write it down and tell one person that you trust, it's so helpful. Yeah, for sure. Um and then, like I said, a take back your life recovery has been really like a pivotal moment for me in being able to put everything together in a way that I hadn't thought of before and to just take all of these different elements and synthesize them into something that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think it can be a very helpful thing for some of us that grew up in cults and f- high control situations and groups mm-hmm. to, to do a course like that because it really sets the pace for your healing type of thing. Helps you realize what where all these things come from in your brain and physically, psychologically, mentally, how all of these kind of things work. I think springboard into healing because you're more well-informed that way. You can go and find all the information yourself, but to have somebody put it all together for you like that in, in a course, and these are the things that have been helpful to a lot of people, it's really nice. It's very helpful. Mm-hmm. And also seeing other people that have gone through something similar, it really helps you to feel not so alone because I think that's a really huge thing is a lot of people feel really alone in their suffering and they don't feel like anybody understands. So doing a thing like that with a group of people, you're like, oh my God, I'm actually not that alone. There's 25 people here and they all have a similar experience at least. Yeah, yeah. it's very validating, I find. It is. It is very validating. I totally agree. Okay. Rather than just talking to somebody that's never heard about a cult or doesn't know what it is, and then being like, you just need to get over it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think also having two therapists that are not only trauma informed, but have also come from high demand situations is really awesome too, because I don't know about you, but I struggled when I really got to the point where I wanted to deal with this and be in therapy and talk about it. I had a hard time finding anyone who even understood how to be therapeutic with people who come from that kind of abuse and that kind of high demand situations. So there's a real need yes. for it. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, that while take back your life recovery, isn't therapy, it c- really can help you get on a path to recovery. Yeah. Totally agree. Whisper and I are both taking the born in a cult, class in july oh good i'll see you there (laughs) yes i'm very excited about that one too yeah me too me too this will be the first time i've ever been around a group of people who will have had the same experiences as me in in childhood indoctrination Mm -hmm. it's amazing it really does make you feel like, like you're not struggling alone and there's people that you can connect with and stuff that have similar experiences. And I feel like having a kind of a community like that is really important with people that understand you too. Yeah. And it must be so great for you all with your podcast too, because I'm sure you're hearing from people all the time. Yeah. 
It has been really good, actually. I don't know. This podcast has been life-changing for me, just doing the podcast and meeting all of these warriors and incredible people that have overcome so much to be here. People like you. Uh, yeah, I the way you all are able to talk about your experiences, I think really opens things up for other people to be vulnerable. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you so much. I think our best places are found when we are being vulnerable. Yeah. I, I think an important aspect of it too, just aside from sharing our you know stories of healing and overcoming and and all of that is when you grow up under indoctrination from a child and you have the experience of stepping into the wider world you spend so much time feeling like an outsider looking in and that's a really painful place to be <clears throat> and unfortunately in our society a lot of that gets blamed on the person experiencing it, it's like they victim blame someone for it's your fault that you're standing on the outside, <laughs> you know, when, when it's absolutely not. So sh- being able to share our experiences in that the culture shock, it is a, an absolute culture shock going from a very intense culture shock, <laughs> going from the life that of extreme isolation and indoctrination into a world that's moving at such a fast pace. Mm-hmm. It yeah. really helps to expand the community that has experienced that expand that community in our lives because then you're around people who understand your heart who understand the way you look at things and understand your outlook on things even when it's it's it really takes away some of that isolation that so many of us struggle with in our experiences yeah i agree next time that's so fun (laughs) you're going to be having some very exciting stories (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh oh gosh just thinking about it thank you all so much for joining us and we'll end it like we always do stay brave and remember that every butterfly was once a caterpillar